0: Dialogue with Drake and Debo. My name is Emma Drake.
1: And I am Sweta debu This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Our topic for today is short term rentals in Charlottetown. Short term rentals have seen an explosion in numbers over the last few years. As their numbers have grown, the rental market housing availability has decreased. While the housing crisis is due to numerous reasons, it is undeniable that one of the leading causes has been the increase in short-term rentals. So, back in April 2019, it was found that one in 50 dwellings in
0: Charlottetown were listed on Airbnb. Now, this represented 2% of residences in the market. Now, according to the Canada Research Chair in Urban Governance, Dr. David Walksmith, even 1% of the total housing market being converted to STRs, or short-term rentals, constitutes a serious impact on housing availability. And indeed, in that previous year, Charlottetown had a housing vacancy of 0.2% vacancy. Dr. Walksmith has spoke to the impacts of short-term rentals in Charlottetown in two occasions. The first time was back in October 2019 at a presentation at UPEI, and the second time was in March 2020. Now, the second occasion was done so after being contracted by the City of Charlottetown to research short-term rental impacts
1: in the City. The 2020 research, which put forward five potential recommendations and scenarios in short-term rental regulations, was meant to guide the City Council in developing these regulations. The first draft proposal was presented on March 13, 2020. However, just a few days after, with the global pandemic, this has meant that there has been no further public consultations nor discussions on the matter of short-term rentals in Charlottetown, effectively putting these regulations in limbo. Now, today on Dialogue, we are very pleased to welcome our very first panel to discuss short-term rentals with us. Our first panelist is Mr. Jonathan Greenan,
0: also known as at JB Greenan, or as we call him, JBG. Now, he's a lawyer by trade, curling fan, ex-Jeopardy champion, supporter of Moth Lane Brewery, a self-proclaimed turbulent priest, and a strong advocate for short-term rental regulation in Charlottetown.
1: Our second guest and panelist for today is Robin Graham. Who can be found on twitter at rbngrhm and she is a community organizer fashion icon student she recognizes housing as a human right and she is a strong advocate for short-term rental regulation in charlottetown
0: and our final panelist on our short-term rental
1: panel is nate hood
0: also known as at hood haikus Now, he is a policy wizard, lover of freedom of information and protection of privacy, also known as FOIP, supporter of Juice Co., local business here in Charlottetown, and a strong advocate for short-term rental regulation here in Charlottetown.
1: Okay, folks, thank you all so much for being with us today. And I think to get started, we'll just go around the group now and see how everyone's doing. How are you doing today, Robin? Really sunny out. I'm just chilling on a Saturday. (laughs) That's perfect, Jonathan.
2: I don't know. How are you doing is always one of those loaded questions I find. You don't necessarily want to know really how much someone's doing anyway, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing all right. COVID fatigue is real. I think everyone's feeling that. Uh, but uh, certainly as far as, you know, things going in the world, we've been pretty lucky here, but uh, otherwise I'm keeping on, keeping on.
1: Okay. And our third guest, Nate, how are you today?
3: I'm doing well. It's March break. No Palm Ooh. Beach trips this year, but the <laughs> <laughs> is a lovely place. So it's good to, good to be on the island and the weather is getting a lot better. So that's nice as well.
4: Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thank you three so much for jumping onto this uh, short term rental panel. Now we're going to jump right into it with you, JBG. Now for the folks at home, what is the current city of Charlottetown policy
2: on short term rentals? Well, I guess, depending on who you ask, uh, you might get different answers on that. But really, I would say right now, there is no short-term rental policy at the city of Charlton. Uh and, and that's the problem, I think. Uh, there have been people calling for more clarity and more definitive regulations uh, relating to short-term rentals going right back to 2017 with the uh, Youth Retention Advisory Board report from that year. Um, and certainly the process has stalled somewhat in, during the pandemic. Uh, with the last real action on this on this subject having taken place about a year ago from right now, um, so right now short-term rentals are essentially being allowed to operate anywhere in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, they're operating in all forms of residences, so you know, single homes, apartments, condos, duplexes. Uh, they're operating in all all kinds of neighborhoods even though they're mostly concentrated in the downtown core mm. uh, studies have shown the Walksmith study that we'll be talking about in this uh, in this panel showed about 60% of uh, Charlottetown's STRs are downtown
4: wow. um,
2: and and that's had an impact certainly on the character of downtown and on uh, on who's able to live downtown which is fewer people um, here in Charlottetown uh, that there are existing zoning bylaw, Uh, provisions that apply to short-term rentals. Mm -hmm. There has been resistance from, uh, I would say, staff within the city to acknowledging that point. And certainly there's been no action to enforce uh, any provisions where a short-term rental might be offsides with the zoning bylaw. Mm -hmm. But we do have uh, information that's been published from the city as well as uh, information obtained through Freedom of Information Requests Showing that the city recognizes right now the only places that should have short term rentals uh, are single dwellings. Mm. So basically, apartments, condos, duplexes, any of those short term rentals right now are not complying with the existing zoning bylaw.
0: Hmm. And kind of from that expertise, Jonathan, it really feels like um, you know there's a gap between kind of what the expectations are of the city and the lack thereof of policy. Now I'm going to throw it over to you, Robin. You know what has that impact been on kind of two parts: one, the housing options at Charlottetown's, and two, the people that live here or want to live here as well. I should say.
4: Yeah. Um. I kind of noted like a couple stats that I like to quote, Um, one of them being that short term rentals removed an average of 138 housing units from Charlottetown's long term housing market. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, As in another on another podcast, and they're based out of Ontario. Mm. And one of the hosts was like, this is equivalent to 10,000 units disappearing from Toronto.
0: Oh, wow I that very Holy
4: shit <laughs> yeah um another one being strs are responsible for 38 of all rent increases in charlottetown since 2017
0: wow
4: um in regards to like more what you see in real real life as opposed to like stats um i have friends who Like over the summer, they would rent during the school year, want to stay here during the summer, but got booted out for that uh, unit to be an STR. Mm -hmm. So they just simply live in their car or capture. I was was evicted um, once. Uh, I put a damage deposit down. Uh, They sold the building a day before I was supposed to move in and quadrupled the rent on airbnb (laughs) and that really sucked Mm. um another one whenever uh jonathan mentioned like uh like the vibes and like the community when i walk outside downtown um i don't really see neighbors i just see ghost hotels Mm. (laughs) which kind of sucks because the neighbors i do have i love them (laughs) i love Mm. talking to them but sometimes I just like walk around downtown, and I'm like, there's no one here. No one lives here. It's empty.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, Robin, you brought up a couple. You brought up a couple of interesting stats and a couple, and a few very interesting lived experiences as well. But we know that the city of Charlottetown has conducted research on short-term rentals um, as well. Uh, So in fall of 2019, the city of Charlottetown engaged Dr. David Waxmouth, an associate professor at McGill and Canada Research Chair in Urban Governance with specialized research on short-term rentals, impacts, and policies. Dr. Waxmouth worked with the city of Charlottetown to produce a report on STRs in Charlottetown, which was released in February of 2020. Um, Nate, what were kind of the key findings of this report?
3: Well, Robin, I think touched on a few of the findings, you know, the the units that are being pulled out of our long term housing market. Um, the impact it's having on rent increases, because, of course, when you're pulling units out of the market, you're reducing the supply. So it becomes a lot more competitive uh, if you're a tenant looking for a place to live and landlords can take advantage of that. And and it's the same for developers as well. The developers are going to set prices that they believe believe are reflective of the current market and and that will lead to, to uh, rent increases there as well. I think one thing that sticks out in particular with his report is that entire home listings were 77% of all active listings and earned 89% of all host revenue. So basically what you're seeing are homes that could be used to house families are now basically being converted to those ghost hotels. And it's especially troubling when you see where a lot of these units are located because they are located downtown or kind of close to downtown. And that's supposed to be the place where you have easy access to services, where transit runs. And when you push people out to the boundaries of the city, you know, that makes it more difficult for those people to access those services in town. It makes it more expensive for the city to say deliver public transit because now they have to develop transit lines out to these communities, rather than having um, communities built around transit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does have a lot of negative impacts mm-hmm. and it's funny too with that report and Jonathan knows about this because Jonathan was in the meeting with me um, the it's public initially. It was actually going to be discussed in a closed session of Council. Mm-hmm. and we had suggested to them that we don't think you're supposed to be in a closed session based on the municipal act and in fact the city went back to their lawyers and their lawyers basically confirmed and you'll see in all the media coverage of the meeting when they talked about the report that oh yes we've decided to have this in an open session because that's what our lawyers have advised us to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really troubling as well, because this report really shows, because before this report, I think people on the ground, tenants knew that short-term rentals were having a real harmful impact on Charlottetown residents, Mm -hmm. but people would be dismissive of it. You're, you know, exaggerating it, or you have no proof. And this was really the first sign of proof that this was having some really bad impacts on communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that that almost was not made public, is pretty concerning.
1: Right. Absolutely. And Nate, you make a very good point, which is that the report was very decisive and provided very strong evidence to show the negative impact that STRs were having in Charlottetown. Now, Jonathan, how do you find, has this report been integrated in the city of Charlottetown's decision-making on short-term rentals?
2: Well, because of the timing of this report being publicly shared uh, at the March 9th, 2020 Council meeting, uh, and then essentially COVID hitting later that week at the start of the next, uh, the planning board did come forward uh, and and propose potential bylaw and official plan amendments to reflect the one of the five scenarios outlined uh, by planning board and proposed to Council that Council directed them to go forward and, and develop Uh, potential amendments based upon that fourth of five and it is the second least restrictive on short-term rentals of the five options I would say. Um, It will generally allow uh, short-term rentals to continue in commercial uses in the downtown area Mm -hmm. uh, but it will protect neighborhoods uh, further afield, residential neighborhoods that will seek to preserve their character. By not having short-term rental commercial operations, which are essentially ones where the, the owner does not live on site or does not use the unit as their primary residence. Um, so they did reflect some of the locksmith changes there. I think because they have chosen the one of the less restrictive um models, at least as the the model that's being brought forward, they're very clear to say that this is a at the draft proposal public discussion stage only um i think there there is more or there are more of uh, the walksmith recommendations that could be reflected in a bylaw and and official plan all models though are going to increase uh, the number of of homes that will be available uh, for families for young professionals for seniors to to potentially occupy um, but I do think there is more room to be stricter in in how they're going to apply short term rentals in downtown, because all of Nate's points are bang on with respect to uh, accessibility to to commercial services, accessibility to transit, uh, the the points Robin made about you know having neighbors around and the character of a neighborhood, and and it feeling like there's life downtown. And I think that. If you ask ask a lot of um, business operators downtown, we hear it all the time from the downtown business community. They have been hit hard by COVID because no one's here. Mm -hmm. So many people are working from home. Well, in addition to all those people working from home, there's hundreds of empty, vacant houses downtown too, or housing Mm -hmm. units. So the Walksmith report indicated uh, that based on their analysis and conclusions, removing... Uh, or limiting uh, tourist accommodations to primary or, or uh, principal residence use would not impact uh, tourism travel to Charlottetown. So that's kind of one of those things that is always used by uh, advocates for short-term rentals that, well, this is the major driver of our tourism industry. You know, this is why people are in downtown. Mm-hmm. That's not what the Walksmith data supports. Mm-hmm.
1: Perfect, yeah. Um, And Nathan, did you have anything else to add to this question?
3: Yeah, I mean, Dr. Waksmith had found that we had the most seasonal variation of any Canadian short-term rental market. 70% of our reserve nights were between May 1st and September 30th. So, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: you know, that that does put you at risk because if you have an event like COVID-19 where travel is restricted and people can't come into the province, then you don't have that customer base to come in and support local businesses. And like I was saying earlier, you've taken people who would have been in the downtown core who could Mm -hmm. walk to these locations and shop there and eat there you've pushed them to the edges of town, or you might've even pushed them out of town completely. And they're not going to be around to support local businesses because Mm -hmm. they're just not close. It, It doesn't make sense for them. So, you know, it can have harmful economic impacts in that way. And I think also Jonathan makes a really good point about travel. I don't think anybody makes a decision to travel to any location based on whether or not they can find specifically an Airbnb unit. Mm. And there has been some research on that. The Economic Policy Institute had had talked about that. And I think they said it's only about two to four percent of travelers are really wow. that concerned about you know, whether or not they would have access to something like an Airbnb for travel. Mm-hmm. People would be fine with hotels uh, or what have you. Yeah. Uh, you know, things that would be much more important for ensuring that people can travel to PEI would be a good tourism product Are other things to come and see and experience on PEI. You know, mm-hmm. do you have methods of transportation into the province, like a bridge or a ferry or, uh, you know, an airport those are way more impactful in getting people to PEI than, than Airbnbs, especially when they're competing in a market where there are already viable alternatives.
0: Mm -hmm. And Robin, do you have anything to add to that as well?
4: I was just thinking, um, about like supporting downtown businesses and with the higher rents, really residents don't have any money to spend anymore because it's all, it's all gone to rent.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: rather than you know buying a cute little mug or treating yourself (laughs) to a local cup of coffee it's like my rent is two three hundred dollars more now I can't go to the farmer's market Mm. I can't go to you know what I mean
0: yeah no definitely and I think um, you know oftentimes people assume that folks looking to analyze short-term rentals are uniquely focusing on you know, it just being a housing issue, but, you know, it's a business issue and it's a, you know, culture issue and it's a heritage issue and it's it's just kind of an intersection of a number of different things. Now, Nate, I'm going to go back to you. It's been exactly one year and two days since this draft proposal that we were mentioning earlier was presented by the city. What action has the city of Charlottetown taken to regulate short-term rentals?
3: (laughs) Nothing. It, I mean, you see it in the news and they were doing this before COVID <laughs> to be totally honest, you, you would always see them in the news saying, well, we have to delay it for this reason or for that reason, if they provide it all the, the reason right now is that y- there's a global health pandemic and it's not safe to meet, which. Might make sense if they weren't already hosting public meetings for other planning matters, mm-hmm. I think there are plenty of options for the city if it really wanted to regulate short-term rentals to host these public meetings. They don't have to just do one public meeting. If they want to have people there present in person, they could hold a series of public meetings to ensure that we're able to social distance, uh, to to protect public health. They could find a way to implement a technological solution. So maybe it's like a Zoom call where people Mm -hmm. can schedule themselves to speak for five minutes or what have you. I think there are lots of ways for them to hold public meetings, but I think the the biggest issue is political will. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to identify who on council wants to move this issue forward because they don't want, want to talk about it. And like I said earlier, a lot of these discussions have been happening behind closed doors and in camera sessions. And that's hard for the public because we want to see, our elected representatives discussing these issues in public, we need to know what they're saying and how they feel because how are we supposed to speak to them and communicate our views with them if if none of that's being done in the open? Absolutely.
2: Mm-hmm. I really couldn't agree more with what Nate's saying on that point. Uh, nothing has happened since mid-March of 2020 on this. If you go to the city's website right now, the short-term rental process uh, section under mayor and council, You'll see right on there that they say this is a draft proposal. It's early in the process and we are not accepting any information or input uh, from residents at the present time at the mayor's office or at planning. So they're really not looking to hear from anyone on this right now. There is no desire to push this forward. And that is very consistent with the experience that I've had in, in the conversations I've had with city staff with city councillors with the mayor there is a real reluctance to move this forward Mm. I won't speculate on motives but there's all kinds of coincidences and there's all kinds of information that we've been able to acquire through freedom of information requests that um, that suggests there are definitely people within the city whether it's at the council table or on city staff who are trying to to, to jam this up and to slow this process down. And I, I have no doubt that they are responding to, uh, pressure from short-term rental operators. There's big money in this Mm -hmm. for, for some people. And the Walksmith report speaks to that, um, about $8.3 million, I think it is, uh, in revenue in 2019 for short-term rental operators in the city of Sherriltown. Mm-hmm. and the top 10% of operators make about half that. So wow. there there are lots of people making money off of this while hundreds of housing units sit mm-hmm. mostly unused for good chunks of the year. Mm-hmm. And I mean the yeah, the city has has definitely been stops and starts on this all the way along and it, it's funny sometimes it looks like there's progress and then something will happen that leads to a delay. Like we know from some of the documents we've been able to obtain uh, and also from some information that's been shared in like tenant Facebook groups and things like that, uh, that there was a survey held in September of 2019 in response to a closed meeting presentation uh, from planning department about regulatory options. So counselors submitted responses to a survey then nothing more happened from that. So we can only speculate what the counselor's options were, but very shortly, or what the counselor's answers were to that survey, but very shortly after this, the short-term rental association was formed. Mm -hmm. And very shortly after that, the decision to regulate was further delayed for further study, which is the point in time after which they hired uh, professor Watchman's team. And that, that was the right choice because uh, the information they had to that stage uh, from what I know was was decent information but certainly Professor Walksmith is mm-hmm. the leader in Canada on this particular topic and we are definitely trying to and I know that that Nate can speak to where that stands but we are trying to get information about how each of the individual counselors responded to that in-house survey because that's the kind of thing that's there's no reason for that discussion to be happening closed camera
1: mm-hmm. absolutely and all of you have been touching on something that's really interesting which is the fact that information is there the information is pertinent it's very relevant and it's decisive but nothing has been done in the past year and you know we can kind of uh hypothesize why that is but you know and we're going to ask all of you this question which is why do you think um, what, what do you think are the biggest barriers to regulating short-term rentals in Charlottetown? We know this isn't a new policy option, um, even within PEI. You know, in 2014, the municipality of Victoria regulated short-term rentals. So we'll go to you first, Nate. Uh, what do you think are the biggest barriers here?
3: Well, I think the first obvious one is political will. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see very much political will to, to push this issue forward. And I think there's a bit of both sides. Mm -hmm. on this issue that oh this issue is affecting tenants but it's also affecting the short-term rental operators and we don't want to disproportionately hurt one Mm -hmm. but the interests are you know vastly different as well because Mm -hmm. on one hand you have people who are just looking to secure shelter for themselves which is a basic human right and the other ones are looking for profit Mm -hmm. and for any government to suggest that those are both equal priorities is totally ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one one problem. And I think as well, when we talk about the economic aspect of it, I think we look at this as short-term rentals are good for tourism, it's good for the economy, it's good for business, that's why we need to support it. But like Robin said earlier, you know, if these are making it harder for people to find homes in Charlottetown, or if it's leading to more rent that Charlottetown tenants have to pay, that's taking money out of the local economy, because yep. these are people who would be spending it across local businesses, um, I, you know, and and on other things like starting a family in Charlottetown or, or what have you. Now, this is going to a very small group of people, yep. um, and we have no idea where that money is going to be spent, because we know lower income people tend to spend their money locally. But mm-hmm. as you grow up, the the income ladder uh you typically don't spend it necessarily locally and of course some of that money could be going to buy new homes right Mm -hmm. to to rent out and so and then they're competing with you know young families who are trying to buy their first home so Mm -hmm. uh i i think it's really a misunderstanding perhaps of the the economic equation and and viewing short-term rentals as a net economic good when in fact it does have a lot of Mm -hmm. bad uh, economic consequences uh, for a large segment of the Charlottetown population.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Robin, what are some barriers that you think, you know, are preventing regulations of short-term rentals?
4: I kind of agree with what, uh, Nate said, like a lot of the time, I feel like when people talk about like the economy, they're like money. Good. <laughs> 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 money isn't Good. If it stays in one place, Yeah, <laughs> money sure. isn't good. If it's going to one person or one, company the money you know needs to be spent multiple times in order to stimulate the economy Mm -hmm. it's not just money good like (laughs) Mm. the money needs to go places in order to be good um and also i think like the way that the sdr association kind of beefed up and banded together Mm -hmm. i think that is causing a barrier because Mm. they do have a way of being Uh, of almost presenting themselves as like a mom and pop local business which in most cases simply isn't true um Mm. most of the most successful and most of the money goes to the people who own like 100 houses 50 houses 25 houses or units Mm. it's not someone who's renting out their spare bedroom absolutely perfect
2: to add to to robin's point there the stats from the walksmith report are 46% of Charlottetown listings listings are not being operated out of principal residences, and commercial operations are responsible for about 60% of short-term rental nights. So so that's also, and Robin's absolutely right, velocity, movement of money through the economy is what makes a strong economy. Mm -hmm. And those 60% of short-term rental nights, Mm -hmm. I agree 100% with Nate that those people are still coming to PEI and they'd be spending that money staying somewhere else. Like if I were a bed and breakfast owner and operator in Charlottetown, I would be livid about the failure, the refusal to take any kind of action uh, against people who are snapping up houses all around me Mm -hmm. and taking away my business to simply profit themselves Mm -hmm. as well as hollowing out our neighborhood. I no longer have neighbors as as a traditional bed and breakfast operator. Mm-hmm. As far as the barriers, I agree political will is the biggest one with both Nate and Robin. I do think money is is another big one because I think the most vocal short-term rental operators are definitely people who are influential mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, to being able to get the ear of councillors and the mayor and, and maybe senior city staff and to have their views perhaps heard more often and and more well received than uh most tenants i would say tenants Mm. it's hard for tenants to have a voice that is equivalent to that of a landlord who owns 100 units and wants to use 40 of them as short-term rentals so
1: absolutely and nate did you have anything else to add to that
3: yeah i mean hollowing out neighborhoods is definitely a, a big concern and i remember talking to someone and, you know, I used to live in downtown Charlottetown when I was growing up, I don't live there anymore, but, um, the home that I grew up in is apparently now sometimes used as an Airbnb or what, I don't know how it's used, but I remember someone telling me that the monthly rent was $3,000 a month Wow. and that there were six people living there. And you know, it's crazy because I don't think that house is really worth $3,000 a month, to be (laughs) honest. But the the other side of that equation is also, well, who's living there? Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, it was international students who were living there. And I think international students and newcomers are especially at risk because they're not familiar with rent control laws Mm -hmm. um, or the protections they would have under PEI tenancy legislation. And, you'll often see them being the ones who are getting ripped off Mm. uh, when it comes to their rent. And I think that's another aspect of it that worries me a bit as well. Mm. Um, because it's bad enough, I think with tenants writ large, and it's really good to see the community coming together to help educate Islanders on what their rights are. But there are still so many people on PEI who don't know what their rights are and they are being taken advantage. And certainly when you're shifting from, short-term rentals to kind of these more really medium-term rentals Mm -hmm. uh i I think there's a greater possibility for that to happen to to be taken advantage of
4: Mm -hmm. and robin you had something to add as well yeah just when he was saying about uh how like a lot of international students or tenants in general don't know their rights and protections um i actually did an internship at the supreme court Mm -hmm. and every single day six to ten times a day Someone comes in, how do I fill out this IRAC form? Um, I can't afford a lawyer. Mm. Um, like, How do I type it out? What's the proper form so that IRAC will accept it? Because yeah. they're trying to raise my rent by like half and I can't afford a lawyer. How do I do it? Yeah. And like people don't know that those services are there for them. And even just how filling out one of those like legal style forms, not everyone just knows how to do that. Mm -hmm. you know what I
0: mean and it was Mm -hmm. just so
4: sad to see like multiple times a day every single day I need to fill this out against my landlord like it's Mm -hmm. so so common Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and especially too when you said Robin you know if if someone is approaching you saying I can't afford a lawyer well, they also certainly can't afford their rent doubling, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's kind of, it goes both ways. They're put in a position where, you know, A, they can't afford, you know, this increase, but also they can't afford supports to maybe address that increase. So there's definitely, I think, um, you know, as much as we continue to do increased education, um, and and we've seen a lot of work on that, for example, like with the grassroots advocacy of my old apartment, that's awesome, but we know people are still, slipping through the cracks because the policy simply isn't there to catch them when they slip. So, um, you know, one big barrier you had mentioned, Robin, was the I think you would put it as the the banding together of the short term rental association. Um, and in December 2020, the short term rental association, of course, raised two thousand two hundred and seventy five dollars to donate to the Upper Room Food Bank. Now, in a protest or a reaction or kind of as a follow-up to this, uh, you're very vocal online on Twitter, encouraging folks to donate money to the Upper Room and as well raise awareness on the harms of short-term rentals that are happening, uh, particularly on folks who would be accessing the Upper Room Food Bank. So, you know, what motivated this campaign launch on Twitter?
4: Well, as soon as I saw it, I was like, um, well, this is a little tone tone deaf. Um, <laughs> you're raising the rents in all of Charlottetown and you're donating a very small amount of your profits to the food bank, which people have to use because of you. Yeah, um, Not exclusively because of them, but they're contributing. Um, and I was like, well, $2,000 is nothing. Um, and as soon as I saw it, I was like, this is an excellent opportunity to raise more money than them. Mm-hmm. Mm. And
0: as a kind of final marker, I forget how much in total was fundraised. I think it was it was over 13,000. Correct me if I'm wrong, Robin, I feel like it was more than that, too.
4: Yeah, it was a little bit over 13,000 from uh, 350 people who were almost exclusively renters, almost exclusively like people who don't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm.
2: A lot of islanders who have moved away because of the costs of living Mm -hmm. uh having gone up here and and wages not keeping pace and and people i think who would love to come back home but Mm -hmm. who don't feel that they're going to be able to because there just aren't affordable options for for what they'll be able to earn working here so there definitely i think was uh certainly myself there was some spite involved in (laughs) uh, and, and 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 tone deaf is a very polite way of, uh, of putting it as to the short-term rental uh, associations, I feel publicity stunt. Uh, it was very much about uh, virtue signaling and showing themselves to be good community members as part of ultimately their campaign to have as minimal restrictions on their commercial operations as possible. And it was great to see so many people, hundreds, 350 Robin said, uh, band together to to stand up and say Mm -hmm. no we have a problem with this and we're out here and we are prepared to stand up and have our voice heard and to put our money where our mouth is too
4: yeah as soon as that happened um i was getting the sense of they wanted to be like you know we're part of the community and i was like i'll show you community
1: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely Yeah. So have there been any other major takeaways uh, from the results of this fundraising?
4: Um, I made a little list. Um, Number one being how important tenants are to our community. Um, If we can come together for a fundraiser like that, we can and we will come together again and again and again. (laughs) Um, Another was how to make a movement kind of almost immune to criticism. Um, They did call me a meanie but it is what it is um we tracked every donation and made sure people directed directly donated mm-hmm. um i also put a little note i knew the SD owner, sdr owners were big mad but they couldn't respond properly mm. i think it was also a great reminder that we have not and will not forget about the sdr uh, regulation recommendations mm-hmm. um number three Uh, two of my friends helped me keep a spreadsheet of all of the people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And we're going through and contacting them to see if they want to, you know, help in the future. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And number four, I put, because with my old apartment, I messaged Darcy. I was like, this is amazing. Mm. And she was like, oh, like when I saw what you did, it sparked an idea. So I put, "Uh, when you see it, you can be it. Mm-hmm. so like not to like flex or something <laughs> but, <laughs> like as soon as people saw that in the news they're like oh i can do something that i'm passionate about too i can fight for tenant rights i can do a mutual aid fundraiser like i can make a small difference because community is very important mm.
0: absolutely i think too it like sparks kind of a A sense of energy, too, because I remember that night when everything was going down on Twitter and, you know, slowly kind of creeping up, you know, it was at 300 and then it kind of got to five and then boom, hit the 1000 mark. It's like, okay, this is really becoming something now. And then as soon as it hit the like 2200 target, it just it was skyrocketing from there. It was like it was it was interesting how much that. Energy, I think, flowed, and then as kind of a result, you know, impacted other things. And Nate, you had something to follow up to pertaining to the upper room food house.
3: Yeah, there was a story in tbc just this week where they were talking about how they're seeing an increase in demand and housing, or the cost of housing is one of the main factors and why they're seeing more people. So, yeah, to Robin's point, mm-hmm. you know if these are the same people who are raising rents and making Mm. housing more unaffordable, you know, it's a bit ironic to suggest that you're doing a great job donating, you know, a fraction of what you'd be earning back to the people that you're taking it from. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what I've learned from this, um, is that, you know, this was a election issue back in 2018. And the way they're going with this, it's going to be an election issue in the next municipal election, Mm -hmm. because they are just not taking action to do this. I would be surprised, frankly, if regulation was in place by the next municipal election. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I mean, there's going to be so much to deal with as far as just when a final, because I mean, we don't even know when a public meeting is going to happen. But then once you have a public meeting, you have to have a bylaw that you pass through. We don't know when that will come into force and we don't know how grandfathering is gonna work either because that's all kind of up in the air right now. So uh, I think for me, yeah, it's (laughs) we're seeing an issue that's become a political football and I I think it's still gonna be um, one of the big policy issues of the next municipal election
2: i kind of remember someone saying that to the mayor at city hall on march 9th 2020. i think I forget that, was, who that was that was me all oh, right, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> <Anyway>. wow so <laughs> slick jbg <laughs> so, and, and, and that was a year and now five days ago so anyway yeah. um i think that pei's housing crisis has been ongoing for years now the mm-hmm. pandemic in some ways has definitely it's highlighted the issues and 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 the impact of that housing crisis on people. But the vacancy rate has gone up somewhat because of our our quarantining restrictions in terms of allowing people in and out of the province. So there have been positive indicators as far as your CMHC vacancy, Numbers released within the last number of months. Mm-hmm. That's a temporary fix. And as soon as we have something resembling normalcy again, uh, as far as people being able to move to and from the province, a lot of those vacancy or vacant apartments, uh, vacant housing units are going to convert back to STRs and that vacancy rate's going to drop again, I would expect. And we've got national attention. We've had national attention for a number of years on this uh, uh, housing crisis in PEI. And I think we have national allies too, uh, is something that people need to understand, uh, opponents of housing solutions, progressive housing solutions. So we are, I think, ready to continue this advocacy. And we certainly hope that uh, people who are sympathetic and supportive of what we're talking about, which isn't all STRs are bad and all STR operators are bad and the entire housing prices are the fault of STR operators. That's what a lot of people like to characterize this discussion about to try and discredit our position. Uh, what we're looking for, we don't want to limit and eliminate STRs entirely in the city of Charlottetown or in the province of PEI. We want smart regulations that are going to increase the housing supply that are going to then have a lesser impact on raising of rents and raising of housing costs overall for everyone. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's not just the people who are without uh, a place to live, an apartment to rent, uh,
3: mm-hmm. who,
2: are, who are having to pay more, it's everyone who does have a, an apartment that's paying more. And uh, we're, I'm really hopeful that we're going to see some action sooner than later, because I do think if people realize in positions of elected uh, office, that yes this is going to be an election issue again well maybe we'll finally get some movement because it was an issue in 2018 municipally in 2019 provincially it will be much louder if it's <laughs> still an issue in 2022 municipally and whenever provincially
1: mm-hmm. absolutely
4: yeah like i agree with uh jonathan about the it's not just about SCR owners they're like eliminating them completely They love to say that um, some of them. It's multifaceted, but they are part of the issue. Um, But I was gonna say too, like I was before this, I was kind of like looking at some graphs and stuff like that. And then 2018 was the worst of it. And then I was like, oh man, if they don't put something in place before uh, Canada opens up again, it's gonna be 2018 but worse because they're all gonna be pulled at once, and it's gonna be the most severe housing crisis we've ever seen. Like. I am not being dramatic. I am so scared for what what will happen if we don't get those regulations in place before borders mm. open up. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. And that's something I've never really reflected on. But I, as soon as you said it, Robin, it, it totally makes sense that, you know, if we're in a situation where borders open up and folks can travel here now, those units are going to go back. Right. That That's going to be the drop of a dime. And that's going to be a very quick and dramatic impact on not just Charlottetown, but i think as well pei as a whole because As you remember, in 2018, the vacancy rate for Charlottetown was 0.2%. And people were saying, oh, no, this is just a Charlottetown issue. That very same year, the vacancy rate for PEI as a whole was 0.3. There was 0.1 of a percent in a difference um, in that year between the two. So this is something that is really not just a Charlottetown issue. Of course, we, we feel it here, but it's across PEI. And I think you're absolutely right that there is a push and there is a need to be able to I think intercept that dramatic impact when things open up and that's through policy options so folks I have to ask you know what are the solutions moving forward with this you know um, in terms of the uh, city of Charlottetown in terms of policy options in terms of um, you know tenants getting involved and kind of banding together uh, Nate I'll start with you.
3: Well- we have traditionally the poor municipal election turnout rates compared to our provincial elections mm-hmm. and with council currently you know you can look at other issues like the the uh, john a statue where there are many stakeholder groups coming out saying we're not happy with how this is being handled mm-hmm. and yet we still don't see action on it and it really asks the question, who is council listening to? We can't figure out who they're listening to or who whose lead they're following. You know, that's concerning. And the problem with that is that residents feel disempowered that even if they come forward and they say, here's what we'd like to see, council will never act on it anyway. Mm-hmm. And if your council has gotten to that point, the only thing you can do really is vote and change Your representation if you feel like your representation isn't what you want
0: Mm -hmm. jbg what about you what are the solutions moving forward
2: once upon a time i might have said vote and basically stopped at that i have changed my mind on that i don't think it's enough to just be involved electorally i think you have to be involved or and obviously it's a privilege to be able to have the time and energy to dedicate to being involved uh, in organizing and in uh, political activity outside of political season when when we're getting ready for an election. But I do think that people who have an interest in ensuring that there is affordable, available, accessible housing in our city and our province to everyone need to get involved with groups like the PEI Fight for Affordable Housing. Uh, Tenants in particular, I think, should be really... Uh, seeking to have their voices heard by their elected representatives and and considering getting involved with the PEI FAH, because there's important decisions being made at the provincial level in relation to landlord-tenant law that are going to have a real impact on the housing situation in this province on a go-forward mm-hmm. basis. Um, certainly, I think that the squeaky wheel does get the grease in a lot of ways here in PEI, and mm. our our governments are very responsive to uh, negative sentiment in the public once it gets loud and once it gets enough of, enough traction for uh, the general public to start realizing and feeling that, no, this is a big problem. You need to do something about it. Government suddenly can move a lot faster than they usually do when something becomes a real problem for them. And I think that unless there is real action taken on SDRs by the city in the very short term it's gonna get loud again mm-hmm.
0: and robin
4: what about you solutions moving forward to address this um i feel like the str association they're gonna show up and they're gonna show out and they're gonna be loud and they're gonna be annoying um so tenants need to do the same we need to come in together show up show out be annoying um being annoying but effective is the Mm. best way to get anything done online in person um a petition being annoying in the media showing up for a protest um talking to your neighbors seeing if they want to seeing what their issues are seeing if they want to get involved even just getting friends friendly with your neighbors. Like so if something did happen, your neighbors are your friends. If you're facing something, you're facing it together.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much for for chatting with us and sharing in such interesting conversation. I think, you know, short-term rentals have been at the center of so much conversation and discussion over the last two, three years. And it's really great to have you folks come here and shed some light on it. So this concludes our formal interview section. Now, after this, we do have another segment that we typically call our beer panel, though it's really taken on a life of its own throughout the episodes where folks have been sharing episodes or uh, sorry, recipes or restaurants. So, you know, if you'd like anything that you have to share with our listeners, feel free to go ahead. So we'll start with um, let's start with Robin. Do you have any beer or anything you'd like to recommend to our
4: listeners? Really basic when it comes to drinks. I'm a white claw person. That's perfect. <laughs> or twisted Um, But like I, when I think about like drinks, I always want to go to Samuel's in Summerside for like a coffee. They're my favorite on the whole island, but they're in Summerside. And I, I miss them so much because they used to travel to Summerside for school.
2: You mean, and just, they're in Summerside, which is a fantastic place.
4: <laughs> I <just> love Summerside. <laughs> I'm a full Summerside stan, <laughs> and go to Seaside Books and talk to Nancy and have a little coffee and buy your new book, take a nice little drive.
1: <laughs> perfect. And this is a perfect transition to go to you, JBG. Any beer you'd like to recommend to our listeners?
2: Uh. I would be remiss uh, and and unforgiven or not forgiven by my uh, curling teammates if I didn't recognize a couple of beers from our great sponsor, Moth Lane Brewing. The man, <laughs> in, the in, in, in uh, West Prince, or I would say West Prince, they might say Central Prince. Anyway, uh, there the answer uh, IPA is a fantastic beer, one of the best beers in the province. I would say you can usually find it at Churchill Arms. Yes, and. I also quite enjoy, which we uh, have on tap at the Silver Fox Curling Club, where we curl, uh, the Dragon Anchor, which is like a blonde ale as well. So uh, yeah, Moth Lane, it's way out of the way. It's, if you think you're going into the middle of the woods and you think you're in the wrong place, you're probably in the right place. <laughs> anyway, but it's a, a neat spot to get to. And certainly once, uh, uh, once it gets a little warmer, I think we're gonna head up there uh, for some end of year festivities so
1: -hmm. that sounds incredible it sounds like even just getting there even before you get the drink is a complete adventure in itself Uh, absolutely (laughs) to our third guest any beer you'd like to recommend to our listeners
3: okay um i'm always a big fan of the gahan sours Mm -hmm. um i always like to have those and they have been in the last little bit they always they have the raspberry sour which is my favorite but they also have some other seasonal sours that they release, which are really good. So I recommend checking those out. Mm-hmm. Um, Bogside has a new cider. Uh, and I don't know the name. They they brought it over and they were like, here, taste test this. And it was so good. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to buy some when I was leaving. And they're like, it's actually not out yet. It's coming out next week. Um, but I believe it's out now. And I don't know what the name of it is, but there's a new cider that's very good from there. And for people who don't drink alcohol, I think my suggestion would be, uh, the smoothies at Mm Jusco, uh, which are amazing. My personal, uh, I can't even, man, I have to go back there. I, anyway, yeah, no, they have a good selection. (laughs) The the Lucy Lou is really good. Mm -hmm. Um, the Starburst smoothie is really good. Yeah. They have a bunch of just really good smoothies. Um, and so I highly recommend checking that out if you're in, uh, downtown Mm charlatan
1: i think my favorite smoothie from jusco has to be the berry rush one especially on like a hot summer day it's just it's perfect um i think the beer i'd like to recommend i don't know if emma's thinking of the same beer is shine from upstreet which is the beer that they released on international women's day uh we got to try that um last monday when we were at upstreet it's really good super easy to drink it's got it's a little fruity which is nice it just makes it easier but yeah really good beer really good cause upstreet is great
0: Mm -hmm. yeah they do that every year which is really neat and they always seem to come up with some really unique stuff um Mm -hmm. anyways that's i guess why they're in the business um yeah really like shine um and nate the the cider that we tried at Bogside that was the no name i looked it up here it's called snap it's a no sugar added apple vodka soda. Um, So yeah, anyways, they were working on that concoction when we were there, and it was quite delicious. The beer that I'm going to recommend, um, I'm going to go with Copper Bottom, um, because I I did give some love to, I think, Bogside two weeks ago, and then maybe, I don't know, Sweat and I always seem to find the same one, so I tried to find a one I haven't had with her to try and not be copycatting off of her so i'm gonna recommend the juno from copper bottom i think it's a newer one it's a seasonal Mm -hmm. um it says here on their website that it's a new england ipa hazy tropical and stone fruit um i don't know it was it's an ipa i'm sure as dialogue listeners would know i typically tend to veer towards the ipas it was just solid it was good tasty Mm -hmm. sip on it or have a couple i don't know it was good But yeah, that's what I would recommend.
1: Perfect. Well, this was a great episode. Thank you so much to the three of you for agreeing to be our guests. And on our first ever panel, this is the first time Dialogue has ever gone a panel. And I don't think it could have gone any better thanks to you folks.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having us. It's been great listening to you guys and great to be able to participate.
1: Mm It's a lot less high tech once you see how the episodes are recorded. I think. <laughs>
2: Shh! Don't tell listeners.
0: Don't tell listeners. <laughs> Thank you. All so right. Much,
1: Thanks so much. Have a good day.
2: Thanks, guys. You as well.
1: Bye. Bye. And that's all the time that we have today for you folks. Thank you so much again for our three panelists, Jonathan, Robin, and Nathan, for joining us and sharing with us their very important perspectives. Our opening and closing music is
0: Gaspésie by the wonderful and talented Shane Pendergast. Now if you folks are looking to learn a little bit more about Shane Pendergast and his music, our last episode, a Saturday special, I believe it's episode 19 actually, was on Shane Pendergast and his new album Second Wind. He's got a couple shows coming up. First one being Lone Oak for St. Paddy's Day with Josh Langell, another member of the Spud Pickers Band. Now that's on Wednesday, March 17th from 6 to 9 p.m. Another show Shane has coming up is the second Wind album launch, and that's at the Trailside Music Hall, Tuesday, March 23rd, 8 to 10 p.m.
1: Folks can get tickets for that at Eventbrite. Shane has two more shows coming up. First of all, we have the 2021 Credit Union Music PEI Week presents Digging Deep Roots. And this is on Friday, March 26th, 2021, from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. at the Guild. And finally, he'll be live at the Trackity Community Center, Friday, April 30th, 2021, from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m.
0: Now, before we go, we have one last shout out to give, and that's to Kate McKenna. Now, Kate is a reporter with CBC and The Fifth Estate, and one really interesting project she worked on was a book back in 2018, called No Choice, The 30-Year Fight for Abortion on Prince Edward Island. Now, this book provides a historical look at abortion rights on PEI and the failure of leaders to uphold this essential policy to ensure access to abortion rights. This is a really neat book. It looks at a lot of the policy failures at this time and is something definitely both sweata and I recommend. Now, if folks are looking to purchase it, they could go to the
1: bookmark in Charlottetown. Absolutely. And the bookmark is such a cool spot as well. If you're looking for any local reading and if you'd like to support small bookstores, stay warm, stay safe, everyone. This has been Dialogue.